We're actually starting in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. And uh, we've been going through a series called Preoccupied uh, to start the year. Um, we're about halfway through it, which is exciting. Um, this will kind of take us through February. And then uh, starting the last week of February, uh, we're going to be jumping into our Lent series as we get ready for Easter. So it's amazing how quick time is flying. January is over. Um, for the Lent series, we're going to do another one of the, the journals, the prayer journals, uh, with a couple of our, our churches in town. And we're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew, which is exciting. Uh, but uh, for now, Malachi chapter 2. Let me, let me uh, read this passage and we'll dive in. Starting in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. Those who do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. Another passage out of Malachi. Last year I went on a, a trip right after Easter with a bunch of my pastor friends in town. Um, it was kind of an after Easter adventure. Uh, that we, um, we went and hiked down Staff and uh, up in Flagstaff, I had never done this before, I've lived my whole life. Um, we went and hiked down into the lava tubes. Has anyone ever done the lava tubes up there? Uh, pretty cool. Um, I, I was kind of a little apprehensive about it, you know, like going down into this massive tunnel down into the earth. Um, a little claustrophobic, you know. Never know what's going to happen down there. Earthquakes, badgers, who knows what you'll run into. Um, so we get up there, we get like our headlamps on, we get snacks, we have water. And I'm thinking we're going to like this, you know, side of a hill where there's like a cave that you go into. And we're walking out into the forest, if you've ever been there. And I'm kind of looking around thinking like, where in the world is the, are the lava tube? Where do we go? And we just walk out into the forest, and all of a sudden you come to this, this place, kind of this little meadow area, and there's just this hole in the ground. I mean, it's just flat, and you walk up to it, and it, it goes down. And as you get into the, like, right at the cave part of it, it's kind of icy and cold. And we kind of got down there, dug down there. Not, not dig. I mean, <laughs> we, we snuck down there. I don't know how you do it. But, like, you, you get through kind of, like, the crevice in the, in the, in the ground, and then it kind of opens up a bit. And as you start to walk in, it's, it's pretty cold. Um, and you can see kind of like the light behind you. But the further down you get, and the more that the lava tube twists and turns, it gets super dark. One of the things that you notice as you go down is the air starts to change as you go. And you kind of leave the crisp, fresh mountain air, and you get into the cave air. And uh, the further down you go, uh, you notice that the air, the air changes. Um, sound is interesting. You can kind of like hear everything. 
Uh, all, all of your senses are, it, it's just a different experience. And it, I wasn't nearly as claustrophobic as I thought, but we get all the way to the end, and then we're just kind of hanging out at the end of the tunnel, sitting in the dark, about five or six pastors chatting. We turn off our, lamp, our lamps, sitting in the silence. Um, I was very aware of the air down there. That was one of the things I was worried about. Like, how do you breathe? And then, like, you know, I did all this research about how, like, tunnels have their own pressure system that gets air in and out. The air was definitely stale, if you've ever been in there. It's a different kind of air. It had kind of a stagnant feel to it. And it was fine. We could, we could breathe. It wasn't my favorite air in the world. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was pretty ready to get out of there by the time we were done. And as we started to walk back and you get closer to the opening, the air starts to change. I'm never like that aware of just the way that the air feels and smells, and, but all of my senses are heightened. And we get out of the cave and we get back into the, the fresh Flagstaff crisp mountain air. And I was thinking about that air, that experience with that stale kind of stagnant air. When Malachi is writing to the people of Israel, he's writing to a spiritual climate that is stale and stagnant. They're okay, they're living life, but they're not experiencing the, the breath of life the way that they can. And in this, the same way that you can live down there in that cave for a while, I don't think you run out of oxygen, but you can't grow plants. It's something you grow weary of the longer you're down there. Nothing's going to flourish down there with that air. You could be alive, but your breathing, the air quality, isn't quite the same. When Malachi writes to the people of Israel, their spiritual climate seems stagnant and stale. They're okay, but they're not experiencing the, the, the life that, that, that God has called them to. They're, they're not experiencing... Um, the, 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 the type of spiritual life that is vibrant, that things grow, that things develop, that things are enjoyed. A few of the things that, uh, that, that they're dealing with is there's no vision for the future. They're just kind of stale. There's no sense of awe and wonder of what God is doing in the present. There's just kind of like this, we're just here living. They, they've become disenchanted with their past there's no sense of, of, of respect for the, the faithfulness and provision for God. It, it's a stale religious climate. And Malachi is writing to, in a way to open the windows and dispel the stagnation, the spiritual stagnation of his people. He's writing to kind of let the air in, fresh air that will come in and bring life to his people. And as we, as we read through Malachi, we should have this thought in mind. Malachi is writing to awaken, to breathe life into us. We talked about the, the genre of this book, Malachi. It's, it's kind of this prophetic dialogue, this prophetic disputation where God sends this messenger and he's speaking to God's people and he's kind of, uh, he's, he's this go-between between God and his people. And it's almost like God's people are on trial. Some had called this a counseling session between God and his people. Some of us would probably appreciate a counseling session between us and God. But there's seven disputes that break out that we've been kind of working through. And as we've talked about what these disputes mean and what they are, we've said that the themes that come from these disputes are what we want to just preoccupy our minds with this year. The first dispute is about God's love. 
We want to be preoccupied with God's love. The second one was about honor in, in worship, how we, we honor God and how that, that flows into our relationships. We want to be preoccupied with honoring God and everything that we do. Last week, we talked about the, the type of worship, of being authentic and faithful, that we'd be preoccupied with, with living these authentic lives in front of God, in front of others, that we'd be faithful to the honor that, that, that we're called to, honoring God. We'd be faithful to the things that God has called us. This week, the preoccupation is this idea of justice, as we just read, justice. And the dispute breaks out over this idea of justice. In Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And again, they ask this dispute, how? Us? Who? Us? No. How have we wearied the Lord? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or by saying, where is the God of justice? These questions that they ask, they, they've, they've wearied God. Well, these are questions that, it's really kind of a theological question. These are questions that are good to ask, right? I mean, this idea of, of why does, does God allow evil people to prosper? That's a good question. Why is God, when we look at the world and see the brokenness, why does God allow things that are unjust to happen? It's this idea of the theodicy, this, this good and loving and perfect God. How does he exist in a, where he's in control and sovereign with a world that is so broken and evil and painful? Good theological question. The thing about this question for these people who are asking is it's not, it's not a lament. It's not like a question when something tragic happens in your life and you're crying out to God. This is a taunt. They're taunting God. This is a, uh, there, there's something cynical that stings about this because it is wearied God. And we have found throughout the Old Testament, uh, when lamentations and psalms and proverbs, people are allowed to cry out with these questions all the time and, and God hears and moves and responds. But here, these questions are weary in God. These are questions that come from a religious culture that has become very cynical. In fact, uh, one person, uh, scholar I was reading was saying, that if you could describe this stagnant religious culture in the time of Malachi, it would be re religiously cynical, spiritually numb, and morally corrupt. And, and the problem isn't that they're just asking this question. It's, there's, there's a total indifference. There's a mocking of God in these questions that these people are asking to God. They've become religiously cynical, spiritually numb, and morally corrupt. This is 2,500 years ago. Religiously cynical, spiritually numb, morally corrupt. God is wearied because of this dispute about his justice. I'm a pretty cynical person. Early on uh, in my life, I think cynicism was kind of uh, me thinking I was wise. As I've moved older, as I've moved older, as I've gotten older, gotten more eloquent, speaking. Uh, I started to learn that cynicism isn't wisdom. I'm very cynical. I call myself a recovering cynic. When it comes to my relationship with God, there's a lot of things I can be cynical about. I think we live in a culture that is very cynical towards God. A couple of things about cynicism. One of the definitions is that cynicism is a, a distrust, distru, uh, distrustful. It's being dis, distrustful 
of sincerity, sincerity or integrity. Being dis distrustful of anything that is sincere, of any kind of integrity, of any kind of uh, authority. Oscar Wilde said, a cynic is one who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. George Carlin said, you scratch the, uh, the surface of a cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. Uh, something else I think that is interesting with cynicism, um, another definition, this one was really interesting to me, it says that it's one a concerned with one's own interest to the extent that one disregards appropriate activity or standards. So there's one thought that cynicism comes from like we've been disappointed with the way things are in life. We're idealistic and we get our heart broken and then we become cynical like uh, this happens in love relationships. But there's another type of cynicism that happens that, that it's simply, it, it's almost more selfish. There's a concern for one's interest at the ex to the extent that they disregard what's appropriate, appropriate activity. And I started thinking about this when it comes to my cynicism when it comes with God. I mean, there's a lot of idealistic things that haven't worked out in my life that I've been disappointed with. But if I really get to the heart of the religious culture of my heart. There's a, there's a, a selfishness. There, there's something inside me that wants to leverage God, maybe for my own good, even if I have to disregard the things that he's called me to. Cynicism kind of invades my relationship with him. And it's exhausting. You be around cynical people, it, it gets exhausting. If you're Marcy and you're married to me, it's exhausting. <laughs> Cynicism is exhausting. Stephen Colbert, late night talk guy, says a lot of things. You probably agree, disagree, but he says this about cynicism, and I thought it was interesting. He says, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the farthest thing from it because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world, because they are afraid it will hurt or disappoint them. Cynics always say no, but saying yes begins things. Saying yes is how things grow. Saying yes leads to knowledge, to growth. And I thought about that with our relationship with God, and the people who are receiving this have just lost their sense of awe and wonder of what God is doing. That God is at work in our lives. That there is a future for us. That the things that happened in the past weren't just coincidences. They weren't just accidents. We've lost our awe and wonder of God. We've become religiously cynical. And the second thing is this culture is spiritually numb. And I've gone through phases of my life where this numbness kind of consumes me, takes over. When I become spiritually numb, I start to say things like, I don't experience God like I used to. I just don't feel him anymore. I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not being fed. I'm not growing spiritually. There's nothing like wrong. There's nothing bad. I'm just kind of mundane. Spiritually numb. It's like breathing stale air in a cave. Why aren't things developing and growing in my life? Why isn't God showing himself to me in ways that just seem miraculous? Where is the awe and the wonder? 
Malachi is writing to these people to awaken them. To say this, the cynicism that is just wearing God out. This lack of being in tune with what's going on around you. That God, God is here and he is at work. Do not forget that. And this always seems to lead to this morally corrupt, this morally corrupt uh, generation that Malachi is writing to. Moral corruption. Some would say we might live in a culture that's morally corrupt. But, you know, we're different than what Malachi is dealing with. I mean, let's read some of the things that, that Malachi is dealing with, with moral corruption. It says, verse 5, So I will come and, and put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and Los Angeles Lakers fans. And <laughs> I have some L.A. people now here. <laughs> uh, against those who defraud laborers of their wages. Those who oppress widows and the fatherless. Those who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. Those who do not fear me. Things that he's writing to in that culture. The people have, of God had stopped using their calling, their, their chosenness to be a blessing to the people around. They were so preoccupied with themselves. They were so caught up in their own uh, lives. They, they had failed to, to hear the cry of people around them that were hurting in pain. They stopped looking out for the fatherless, the widows. They stopped taking care of the least of these. Life becomes all about them. To the point that we see that they would even enslave people for their own gain. God is writing and he's saying that, that, that there is all sorts of corruption, but the thing that really breaks my heart is that my people have lost compassion. My people are, are no longer taking care of those around them. There's all sorts of things that this leads to. There's uh, unfaithfulness in relationships, turning to other gods, turning to other uh, things that they find fulfillment in being unjust with their wages. This is 2,500 years ago. When we think about what is it the things that, that are corrupt in our culture, we're, we're morally corrupt society. It might look very different, but humans are humans. When you think about kind of some of our big issues, some of the big topics in our culture that would just break the heart of God, what would they be? How many of you think of something that might be a political issue? It's probably good. You should feel that. When we think of these, these big topics that we just wish God would intervene and handle and, and figure out that are complex, that, that probably break his heart, what that is is there's this longing for justice that we see, that we feel, that, that we know things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And we want God to intervene. When you think about the things that are morally corrupt, how many of you thought about yourselves? It's not the first thing I go to. It's not the first thing I want to deal with. There is this longing for justice, but there's also something interesting that happens where we just kind of project all the, the world's problems is everyone else's fault. It's not me. 
I wouldn't need to fix myself, right? One of my favorite stories, love this story, it takes place back in 1908. There was this Christian author named G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a bunch of books, Orthodoxy, The, Her- the Heretic, uh, great, great mind, living in London at kind of like the height of England's, the British Empire, right? The sun never set on this British Empire, uh, most powerful empire on earth, and he's in the heart of it. And he's this social critic, he's a theologian, he's a pastor, and he's writing uh, all sorts of influential works. The London Times uh, was sensing that the world is not as it should be, something that we probably sense today too. The world is not as it should be. There's, there's great pain, there's great kind of injustice that's happening. And so they asked a bunch of the most influential writers in London, would you write an essay on what you think is wrong with the world? Write an essay, what do you think is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton got this invitation. So he said, okay. So he writes to the London Times this phrase. Dear sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He says, I am wrong. It's me. What a, what a humble thought. Or really narcissistic thought, I don't know. I like to think that it's humble. I am wrong. I'm the problem. I am the problem. This, something about this rings, it echoes the words of Paul to Timothy when he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is 1 Timothy 15. Christ, Jesus Christ, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is the Apostle Paul saying, it's me, I am the problem. I am the worst. And we look around the world and we, we sense there's injustice. We, we sense there's things that happen that would break the heart of God. And yet people who are in this relationship with God, there should be this humility to say, this is how the world gets fixed. The things that are happening on this macro level actually happen inside of my soul. That's going on in my heart. There is, from my own numbness, there is something from my own cynicism, there is something from my own selfishness, my own desire to fulfill my own cravings that needs to be fixed. And God, would you start there? Deep inside of me to change me. Malachi goes on to to talk about what's going to happen. And he says this idea that, that there's this culture that is corrupt, that's numb, that's cynical. He says, I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to send a messenger who will prepare the way before the Lord. And then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God's going to intervene. Malachi's saying God is going to intervene And all of these things that you see that are broken in this world, he's going to come and start to repair them. And the things that are broken inside of you, he's going to come and he's going to repair repair them. And this messenger is going to come first and then the Lord will appear suddenly and act justly. There will be this judgment that happens. 
Remember that Malachi is, he gets the last word in the Old Testament. Malachi is writing, is the last book of the Old Testament. He's saying that God is about to intervene. The gospel writers pick up on this idea. The gospel writers who are writing about the life of Jesus, they start to understand Malachi saying this, something, God's going to intervene, he's going to send a messenger, he's going to send the Lord. There's going to be an intervention. And they start to understand the language that Malachi uses. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, actually quotes this passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, The beginning of good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written by Isaiah the prophet, but then he quotes Isaiah and Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Then Luke talking about this messenger that comes, they started to identify the messenger that was coming first as this man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be this messenger that prepares the way for the Lord. When the birth of John is told, there's a man named Zechariah who breaks out in this song about this messenger. How would you like to have a song written about you when you're born? That was great. Then Luke, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord and prepare the way. Quoting this passage from Malachi. And then finally, uh, Matthew. Matthew picks up on the story of John the Baptist, the one that was supposed to prepare the way for the Lord coming. Picks up on John's story. And John the Baptist in his life, he's preparing the way for the Lord. His message is this uh, compelling message that ends up getting him thrown in jail. And as he's in jail, his followers, he sends them out to Jesus. Kind of with this question where he's like, are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? We, we know that you will come, that, that God is sending someone suddenly that is going to, to redeem and restore all of the brokenness of this world. And is it you? And Jesus' response is this. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is... Uh, the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And he quotes Malachi as well. A savior is coming into the world. There's the, an intervention that is taking place with the brokenness. We see the brokenness on the macro level, but the brokenness that is happening in our hearts and in our soul, all the ways that we get things wrong, Jesus is coming to do something about it. And this is the message of the cross. Jesus has entered into the world. The Lord has appeared suddenly. And all of these things that are broken and corrupt inside of our soul, Jesus has taken the punishment of, of the ramifications of that brokenness and taken them to the cross and conquers sin and conquers death so that we may be put back together. so that the world can be restored. And this starts inside of us individually, inside of our hearts. One beautiful kind of poetic summary of who Jesus is is found in Colossians chapter 1. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him or for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God appears suddenly and makes things right with the cross. The cross is this instrument that that puts the world back together. What is wrong with the world? I am. And here at the cross, I find redemption and freedom and healing and forgiveness and life. We can live life with a stale spiritual experience or we can live life tapping in to the resurrection power of Jesus. This year, I want to be preoccupied with the justice of God the power of the cross that says, I am going to make things right in this world. I'm going to do something about the brokenness. If this place is morally corrupt, if this place uh, is broken, I'm doing something about it with the cross. And this is the message of the gospel that we have heard. G.K. Chesterton, I'll close with this also wrote a hymn, and this was written in the early 1900s. And as I read this hymn, I thought about what a great prayer. With the anxiety that we live in and feel, knowing that we live in a world that is just unjust, that breaks God's heart, things happen each week that make us want to weep. Here's something that Chesterton wrote. He says, God of earth and altar, please hear our cry. Kings of earth, they falter. People drift and die. Walls of golden tomb us. Scornful hearts divide. Take not your presence from us, but take away our pride. From all that terror teaches, from the lies of tongue and pen, from all the empty speeches that comfort foolish men, from sale and acquisition of people and the sword, from apathy and numbness, deliver us. Oh Lord. Today we're going to come to the communion table reminded that this work that God has done that delivers us from our own pride, from our own cynicism, from our own apathy and unleashes us to be a blessing in this world to the people around it. To join God in this work of putting the earth back together, of putting people back together. It starts inside of us. Maybe today that you've never had this experience where you've been opened up to God, where you've allowed God to breathe fresh air into your soul. We use different language of what it means, but it's, it's this idea that you just say to God, come into my heart, come into my soul. I want to decide to follow you. I surrender. Start to put the things inside of me that are broken back together. If you've never made that decision today, we invite you to that. No matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, you're invited to this life that is eternal. 
Maybe today you feel like you're, you're living in kind of a numbness. You're living in a religiously cynical experience. And you just need God to pour into you fresh air. Maybe today you know there's something morally corrupt. And it's leading to your destruction or the destruction of people around you. And you need to turn today. Say, God, make me clean again. Change my heart. I know what it is. We're going to take a few moments to pray. And if you would like me to pray for you, if you'd like to just make a decision with one of those three things, if you could look up at me, I'd love to pray for you. And then after I pray, when you're ready, we'll move to the communion table. This communion table represents what God has done on the cross. The breaking open of his body, which is the bread, the pouring out of his blood, which is the juice. And we'll remember that. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this, these old words from Malachi. That awaken us. And Lord, we live in a broken world. We're broken people. And we ask you to move among us to stir our hearts, Lord, to be more like you. Lord, some of us, this is all new. For some of us, there's been all sorts of reasons to be cynical towards you because of what we've experienced. But maybe we've never just come to relationship with you. For others of us, Lord, we're just coasting in life. We're numb. We're preoccupied with ourselves, not in tune with what you're doing. Some of us, Lord, we've, we've lost our way. So We're so far gone that we're, we're making decisions that are unwise, that are destructive. We need your grace and forgiveness. Lord, would you nudge us today? If you would like prayer, if you would look up right now, I'd love to pray for you. Lord, you're moving in this place. Lord, these people who've lifted up their eyes, meet them right now, Lord with your power, with your presence. Bring grace and life. May we be preoccupied, Lord, with your ways today. In your sons, let me pray. Amen.